the promise of this song that we just sang fulfilled 2,000 years ago when Christ our God and Savior appeared in history to take upon Himself the weight of our sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Lord, we recognize with our text last week that we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Hallelujah. This is what we celebrate today, Lord, and this is what we long to understand more of as we open your Scriptures today. I pray that as the Gospel is dramatized before us in communion, that you would write, Lord, upon the tables of our heart more of its value and meaning. And I pray as your Scriptures are opened and proclaimed, that you would increase, Lord, our ability to comprehend and our desire to make known the goodness and riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, if anyone is fellowshipping with us here today whose heart has not been awakened to the truth of the gospel, that you, through the preaching of your word, would spark faith in them as a sovereign work of your mighty hand and bring them to the cross on their knees, confessing their sins and confessing faith in Christ's shed blood to pay for them, that they might be free. We thank you, Jesus, for these truths. And now as we turn to your scriptures, I pray, Lord, that we would treasure them with all our heart and that we would obey them with all our soul, with all our strength. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Praise God. What a great opportunity to share in His Word today. Turn with me, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 11 for our communion service series. We are going through the book of Hebrews, verses 1 through 7 will be our text today of Hebrews 11. While you're turning there, let me give you just a brief title and introduction. Today's sermon is called Faith Illuminated. Our our message today will look at faith, the concept of faith in Scripture. This, perhaps, in all of Scripture, is the most direct direct and lengthy treatise on what faith is in all of Scripture. And so it's extremely valuable in content and clarity for us If we ever wrestle with the question, what does it mean to have faith in God? What does it mean to have faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ to save? And more than this, beyond this, what does it mean to walk consistently with the faith? That is all of the truth that is wrapped up in the Christian walk and in the directives that the Bible gives for the confessing and obedient believer. So faith illuminated is our message today. Stand with me if you would with your Bible open if you're able to Hebrews chapter 11 out of reverence for God's word and follow me as I read these verses. This is Hebrews 11 verses 1 through 7. Hear now God's holy word. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. 
Verse 4, by faith Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, verse 6 tells us, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this... He condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Hebrews chapter 10 contains warning language for a church that is tempted to lose their way. Taking lightly their faith, or perhaps valuing other things more than the gospel of Jesus Christ, The church was tempted to be wayward and to forget and to reject the ground and foundation upon which they stood. Under these conditions, the author of Hebrews lays out strong language, telling them, for instance, in verse 26, if you go on, if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Dramatic language indeed, illustrating the judgment deserving of those who do not have faith, who fall away as apostates from their once professed faith. Earlier he has said, by way of three directives, first of all he says, let us draw near. Secondly, let us hold fast. He's giving the church instructions to stand strong in the faith. That second instruction, hold fast, is an instruction to hold fast to something. That is, hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That phrase, the confession of our hope, is part and parcel of faith. It's related to our concept today, faith illuminated. He goes on to say, let us consider how, therefore, to stir one another up, to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So there's a danger if we take lightly the faith, misunderstand the faith, confuse it with something else, leave it behind, become weary in our associations with Christians. It's an extremely dangerous place to be. One might ask, given this warning language and stiff rebuke for losing contact with the essence and substance of what it means to be a Christian, Well, what is faith in the first place? How do I know that I truly have faith in Jesus Christ? Well, anticipating this question, the author of Hebrews goes on to describe exactly what faith is. He illuminates faith by numerous examples in the record of the Old Testament of believers who showed their faith by certain acts of service, obedience, endurance, and victory, and so on to the Lord. And he does so also explicitly by describing in theological and spiritual terms what it means to have faith. After thoroughly emphasizing the great dangers of falling away from one's professed faith, 
The author of Hebrews now turns his attention to explaining and illustrating faith itself. This, Hebrews 11, is a lengthy and beautifully crafted poetic treatise, and it follows on the heels of citations from Habakkuk 2, verses 3 and 4. Uh, Habakkuk 2 is quoted, for instance, in Hebrews 10, 38, But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If you were to go back and look at the context of that Old Testament prophet and his day, Habakkuk, you would see that in his time, just as in the time of the writing of Hebrews, there were certain conditions that warranted these instructions. That is to say that time, suffering, and wickedness of the day seemed to threaten the promises of God. How can God's promises be true when we've waited so long for Jesus to return? That thought is a tempting thought which would consider time threatening with the passage of this much time. Do I start to doubt the promises of God? How about suffering? Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ all over this globe are suffering for their faith. And instead of the victorious blessings that are promised to them in the Scriptures, primarily spiritually, so I would submit, they, at least in their physical experience, are enduring hardship, death, and torture for the name of Christ. They might be tempted to doubt under these circumstances. Are the promises of God true? Can I depend on them when I don't know if I'll live to see tomorrow simply for naming the name of Christ? And then thirdly, wickedness. The unbelievers and the evil that surrounds us seems to grow more bold by the hour. This is certainly true in our day, I would submit to you. If you turn on the news, if you look at the collapsing standards of ethics and decency and morality in our culture, it can be a real test for the church. Are the promises of God true under these conditions? Will I be able to stand faithful to Christ, though the world around may grow darker, at least for a time? Will my children survive in this culture of increasing lasciviousness, wickedness, and idolatry? You see, in our time, as in the writing of Hebrews and the book of Habakkuk, time, suffering, wickedness, they can sometimes seem to threaten the promises of God. However, the shield of faith, as it is described in Ephesians 6, is a sufficient armament to quench every single one and every other fiery dart of the wicked one that would seek to assault the true faith in the true Christ. So addressing these challenges, our author infuses the church with courage, recounting God's great works in and through the faithful and redemptive history. I guarantee, saint, no matter who you are, whether you're living in this relatively pampered existence in America, or you're under an Islamic knife about to be beheaded in the Middle East, I guarantee, saint, if you look in the Scriptures, you can see an account of one who has suffered as much as you and has not lost their, and did not lose their faith. And this is the value of the compendium, of the catalog, of the testimony of Hebrews 11. And so this is to this chapter in redemptive history our author turns. So in the book of Hebrews, we'll consider three of these examples today. Abel, Enoch, and Noah. These are examples of ones who have faith and have preserved their souls. Had faith and had preserved their souls. Hebrews 10.39 For we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, 
That is to say, we are not of the faithless, but instead, he says, of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What is faith? Well, in light of our text today, I'm, uh, a companion work that I'm reading um, in our Hebrew study is written by Philip Edgecombe Hughes. It's a great commentary. I recommend it to you if you'd like to study Hebrews more deeply. Philip Edgecombe Hughes wrote a definition of faith, and it's a composite definition from the various texts around our text today in these verses that we're studying today. And here's his definition. Listen closely. It's a little lengthy, but it's powerful. Faith, he says, is that trustful reliance which finds expression in willing obedience and submission to the sovereign word of God, in grateful acknowledgement of the unmixed and goodness of all His works, and in confident recognition of the complete trustworthiness of His promises. I'm going to read that to you again, and then I'll give you an abbreviated form of it, easier to remember. Faith is the trustful reliance which finds expression in willing obedience and submission to the sovereign word of God, in grateful acknowledgement of the unmixed goodness of all His works, and in confident recognition of the complete trustworthiness of His promises. Perhaps we could simplify and summarize by saying this. Faith is believing in and acting on the promises and power of God. Faith is believing in and acting on, you could say, the Word of God. Believing in and acting on the power and promises or simply the Word of God. We should be diligent to emphasize in our understanding of faith that this, even this ability, that is faith itself, the ability to believe, the ability to act upon the promise and power of God, it itself is a gift. It's not of us. It's not of our own doing. It's not a result of works. It's exclusively a gift of God. This is what Ephesians 2.8 and the rest of Scripture tells us. You'll remember the disciples, they prayed, Lord, increase our faith. We should pray the same. Let us therefore pray with the disciples and pray for each other that the Lord would increase our faith. And may He do it by the means of the study of our text today. And so we turn to our text more closely. Here's a heading. Faith is illustrated by the following in our text. First, three qualifiers in the text that illustrate faith. Secondly, there's two teaching asides or little blocks of teaching that are important. Didactic asides, you could call them. And then thirdly, faith is illustrated by three examples, Abel, Enoch, and Noah. So let's look at these. Faith is illustrated by three qualifiers in our text. Turn to verses 1 and 2 again. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's the highlightable word, assurance. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The second one, conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Three qualifiers of faith. Assurance, conviction, and commendation. These are three concepts that the author associates with faith to help illuminate it to shine a light on it, to help us understand more about what faith is. What about assurance? Faith is the assurance, the certainty, the knowledge of what God has promised will happen in the future. Faith is hope for the future based on the surety of the promises of God. 
God's promises are more sure than the, uh, the probability you know, calculation that I make based on the circumstances. In the introduction, I mentioned to you things like time, suffering, and wickedness that would lead us to think that failure is in front of us or that Lord's Word is not powerful enough to save or we are not strong enough to stand in this day of adversity. However, faith comes with an assurance that no matter the enemy, the one who would seek to assail our souls, the devil himself, ourselves, the flesh that still plagues us, the temptations of the old life that would creep in, our propensity to weakness, our failure to remember, our difficulty in understanding the Word of God, you know, the various idiosyncrasies that we have, and just our human frailty, assurance of faith speaks to us that God's promises, in spite of all of this, are nevertheless true. God's Spirit God the Spirit is at work within you if you are a believer today to will and to do of the good pleasure of Almighty God. It is not up to you, your decisions, your behavior change, your discipline, your personality, and your goal setting ability and anything else to achieve those things. All of those are evidence of His work as we were talking from Titus last week. But if the Spirit of God Himself indwells you, and promises to complete the good work of salvation that God has started. By listening to and believing this word of the Lord in His Scriptures, we begin to receive in our mind the assurance that His promises are true. And He will continue to work in me individually to change me into that which is reflective of Christ. Another example... Will the Lord continue to move in the secularism of the West to testify to His power in spite of all of the wicked ones who boldly raise up their flags of opposition against the standard of the Lord and His righteousness in this land that seems to grow more wicked by the day? And the answer is yes. Because God through His great commission is pleased to use the unlikely through the foolishness in the eyes of man of preaching to gather for himself a people, a remnant from every tribe and nation and tongue. As long as there are nations and as long as we are alive and as long as this world system exists in this eschaton, God's word will be championed, His church will be preserved, and light will continue to shine in the darkness and He will subdue His enemies under His feet by these unlikely means. Just like the children of Israel of old, surrounded by all the wicked nations, under the thumb of Pharaoh, 430 years of hard labor slavery, and God delivered them. Not because they were mighty, not because the circumstances suddenly turned in their favor by some fortuitous uh, uh, events that happened to arise. No, because God had purposes and sovereignly ordained His deliverance of the children of Israel from the slavery of Pharaoh into the promised land, though they were least among the people and often did not even appreciate the work of God among them. However, faith gives within us the assurance that even when things look absolutely impossible from our probability calculations, God nevertheless intervenes. Now, some of the naysayers and objections to faith these days come in the form of secular mindsets in academia, science, you know, in various disciplines that college professors uh, seek to inculcate 
the minds of their <clears throat> students with, atheists, empiricists, and those who are philosophically apostate and so on, they always want to draw this distinction between faith and reason, or faith and science, or faith and empiricism, that which I can study and confirm in the lab. And if you listen and you buy their premise, basically what they're saying is faith is something that is basically trusting the absurd. It's what uh, people who aren't very smart do as a, cru- as a psychological crutch to navigate a world that's too big to understand. You might have heard some scientists say, you know, oh, the God of the gaps. We have all this knowledge and then we have gaps. And basically God is the, <clears throat> the concept that we use to explain that which we can't understand. All of these objections to true biblical faith are absolutely false. Faith is not some primitive crutch for a man who doesn't have the ability of sound reasoning and science to help him navigate the challenges of this earth. Faith is, instead, trust in a proven quantity. Faith is a trust in the God who has revealed Himself. Faith is what a wise man does when he realizes that he is not responsible for his own life, his own birth, or the world in which he is privileged to live. Faith is the man who looks beyond himself and with just a smidgen of humility realizes if it wasn't for the sovereign designer, creator, and sustainer of this universe, I would have been killed a million times over in this dangerous, chaotic you know, world of molecules colliding into one another. Faith recognizes with the assurance of eyes wide open to the reality of the circumstances around him that there is a Creator. I am not responsible for my own life in the sense that I don't know what tomorrow holds, yet He does. And I bow before His Lordship. Faith is the kind of assurance that realizes, even in the sciences, that there's knowledge that can be realized. And there's value and there is something to discover and there's order in the universe, none of which would be possible if you didn't assume that the whole cosmos and our experience was ordered by a sovereign God. And so faith, that is to say, is justified by its object. Some people say they have faith in all these different things. But the real question to legitimize their faith is what do they have faith in? What The only true faith, such as I have just described, is faith in the one true God. Now we live in this sort of pluralistic society we like to call it, which is just kind of an oxymoron anyway and a self-defeating idea. We have multi-faith services and we pretend that all faiths have equal value. They do not. The kind of faith that is illuminated for us in Hebrews chapter 11 is the kind of faith that is justified as rational and assuring because it is a faith in the God who created this world, has revealed Himself in Scripture, and has satisfied the conditions for our own salvation in sending His only Son as the propitiatory sacrifice for our sin. That is faith. Second qualifier, assurance, then conviction. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Conviction. The definition and breadth of faith is expanded in the author of Hebrews' uh, instructions to include not just certainty of future events that God is in control of, but also the divine foundations for the reality of our present and the past. Matthew Henry says it this way, the grace 
of faith has a retrospective, that means looking back, as well as a prospect. It looks not only forward to the end of the world, but it looks back to the beginning of the world. And this is the kind of conviction that the author has in mind. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the confidence that the future is in the hand of God. And it is also the conviction of things not seen. That the past and everything that is outside the tangible reach of our observation and experience, the things not seen are in the hand of God. The material and the spiritual. It is the peaceable feeling that God, that His hands are big enough to contain every contingency, all of the universe. And there's not a square inch of the cosmos that is outside His direct providential control. So the qualifiers of faith are assurance and conviction conviction, and thirdly, commendation. This is interesting in verse 3. It says, For by it, meaning faith, by faith, the people of old received their commendation. As a helpful cross-reference, turn quickly or briefly with me to Romans chapter 4. In this passage, in the great uh, gospel according to Paul in Romans, as I sometimes uh, see it, Paul explains aspects of faith that were evident in the Old Covenant. And much like the author of Hebrews uses many examples, Paul cites Abraham, which is one of the examples in the book of Hebrews, to make a certain point. And he does this in verses 20 and 25. He says, No distrust made him, that is Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he, Abraham, grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what He had promised. So you notice those themes that we've been uh, emphasizing already, the assurance and the conviction. Verse 22, That is why His faith was counted to Him as righteousness. You could also say commended. That is why His faith was counted or commended to Him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. What Paul is describing is an expansion of the truth of Hebrews 11.2. For by it, that is, by faith, the people of old, like Abraham of whom we've just read, received their commendation. That is, God counted their faith as righteousness. Their faith in the Messiah to come, the saints of old, was the evidence of their changed heart and life. And, very, and it's, it's the same for us, really, today. Our faith in the Messiah who has come is the commendation of our, it's the mark or the seal of our legitimate Christianity, our faith in what God has done. You see, in light of this, that there is a continuity in all of Scripture. What was the power that saved in the Old Testament? And were people born again? And how how could that be so if Jesus had not come? Well, think of it. It was justification based upon this faith. By grace, through faith, God saved the people of old 
when they trusted in the Messiah to come. And so Abraham trusted. And so it was commended to him for righteousness. And so the notion of faith, this concept, this biblical reality, is something that binds all the saints in unity. As we begin to see their stories play out in Hebrews 11, we can relate to them. We are fellow family members in the kingdom of God. And they celebrate with us as they await us in glory, as it were, because they have had the same experience that we in Christ have had. Namely, that God has given us an assurance and a conviction and commendation in the faith that He has sovereignly granted us as a gift. Second major point today, faith is illustrated. We just covered three qualifiers. Let's cover two teaching asides. The next verse, verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And why would the author slip this little aside in here before he goes through the examples of those who had faith? Well, he wants us to understand that faith in God is not picking one or two of our favorite parts of the Bible or Christianity and just deciding, well, I'll kind of make those my own, I'll kind of own them. But as far as the rest of the Word of God, I'm not so sure. It's up for debate. I'll let the experts figure it out. The Word of God comes as a package deal. And the Word of God is not separated into all these optional parts. It's not a a buffet from which you can pick and choose and customize your religion. Well, I like the red letters of Jesus. Well, well, not the judgmental ones, just the loving ones that make me feel good. But the rest, I'm just going to put aside. In the end, what have you done? You've crafted a God in your own image by taking the knife of your own will and parsing the things that you want to believe and the things that you don't. Well, if you do this, you make you represent no faith at all and you make a complete mess out of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are unified whole and they testify to Christ. Christ Himself is identified as the Word. You can't rearrange and customize and cut and paste and come up with anything that is true faith. The reason I say this is because here it is emphasized that your faith must include the fact that God has created this world in the first place. By faith, that is, by this knowledge, by believing in and acting on the promises and power of God, that notion is associated with, or it goes hand in hand with, the understanding that the universe was created by the Word of God, so that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. You must believe that God has created this world according to His very own record that He has placed in His Scriptures in order to have faith. Otherwise, if you are dangerously confused, if you want to add in certain things and take others out, and I submit to you there are some very famous theologians today that I think, according to Hebrews 11, are dangerously confused. I would not maybe go so far as to say in every case they do not have no faith at all, but I would say that they are not championing the faith if they make exceptions, alterations, modifications to what God has clearly said. Listen to this theologian. Listen with the sermon. He says, Genesis 1, 2, and 3, I think are wonderful picture language. 
but I do think there was a primal pair in a world of emerging hominids. That's the way I read that. But it seems to me that just as God called Abraham and Sarah out of the weltering of wandering nations and said, I've got a special purpose for you, the way that I see it is God has called one pair of hominids and said, okay, this place is a bit chaotic. You and I together, we're going to have a project. We're going to plant this garden. We're going to go out from here, and this is how it's going to be. God wants this primal pair to look after the garden and make it a place of community. Now, I hope as I read that, you were able to see from the testimony of Scripture and Hebrews many red flags. Did God ordain a primal pair of hominids to represent the human race? Or did God ordain the first Adam as we see him in Genesis? Fully formed and fully cognitive, probably much more than you and I. Jesus Christ himself is called the second Adam. He represents all who are in him in the covenant of grace, as it were. If you lose the concept of God's creation, it is a sacrifice not just of science, but of theology. And so the instruction from Hebrews 11 is remember that your faith hinges upon affirming all of God's word as it is directed to you with its own intrinsic authority. You can't, not as a scientist nor a theologian, presume to be a higher authority than what is recorded here and make modifications to make it more respectable to the educated ear, you know, so to speak. God is sovereign. Our God rules in the heavens and has created this universe. We bow to Him in every area of life if we are living consistent with our faith. We bow to His record of how this cosmos came to be in the first place. We bow to Him in how salvation is available to set us free from the pains and the difficulty of the sinful life that we have incurred inheritance-wise from Adam and participate in from the moment we are born with our sin nature fully out there for all to see. We look at creation as an example of the evidence of faith. By faith we understand that God is sovereign over all and His Word decrees the way things are and it is faith to submit to it. To simply act and believe on and in the promises, the power, the Word of God. Second aside, in verse 6, there's a little insert here kind of between the record of Abel and Enoch or uh, Enoch and Noah. And the author says, Without faith it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is interesting. Having just covered the existence part and the creation part, he emphasizes the relational aspect of the nature of God. Affirming God as the God of creation and affirming the nature of that God who created us and everything that we see is part and parcel to faith itself. Without this faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, but not just that He exists, but that He rewards those who seek Him. And implicitly, they also realize that God is a God of whom drawing near is a great benefit and great blessing. This drawing near is a repeated theme in the book of Hebrews. And it emphasizes to us the relational and personal aspects of the God who, yes, is also sovereign over all that we see and will judge every last sin to the, to the absolute 
T. He does so either through the blood of His Son or the condemnation to unbelievers, unrepentant people to hell. But this God who is just and powerful and sovereign is also in His loving kindness and in His mercy extended to us through the work of His Son, a relational God who seeks those who, see, who then in turn seek Him and they draw near to Him through Jesus Christ, the Mediator, through Jesus Christ, their Savior. Without faith, it is impossible to please the Lord, and He is pleased when we draw near. But we can't draw near without the true faith that acknowledges the power and promises to do so. The power to draw near is the blood of Christ to redeem. The promise is that in Jesus' sacrifice, we have full payment for sin and free access to communion, relationship, fellowship, the knowledge, and the growing experience of being in conversation, as it were, with Him through His Word and through our changing life as the Spirit draws to our attention more and more of what it means to be in Christ. We must believe that He exists and He rewards those who seek Him. That those who seek the Lord, who come to Him on His terms, as the book of Hebrews lays out, who accept the priesthood, the high priesthood of Jesus Christ, those who do so receive the reward of the fellowship of the Almighty. These elements before us today represent in the Jews the shed blood of Jesus. And this bread represents His broken body. These are the means that God pictured here before us that God has ordained for us to draw near. We have read already in Hebrews 10, verse 19, Therefore, brothers, since we have, here's a similar word, confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, you could just as easily say faith, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart. In what? In full assurance of faith. This is what he is emphasizing again when he says that you must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. And that without faith it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe these things. And so we have these two asides, these two teaching or didactic asides that help us to understand faith. Thirdly and finally this morning, faith is illustrated by three examples. We'll cover these briefly today. I'll give you some references to study more in your own time. The reference for Abel comes from Genesis 4, 1 through 10. So that's the Old Testament account of what the author touches on. The reference for Enoch is Genesis 5, 18 through 24. And the reference for Noah is Genesis 5, 28, more lengthy, all the way through 9, 29, thereabouts. And in the Old Testament, in the book of Genesis, you can read of these three individuals. Who are they? They are three examples of faith. Faith is illustrated in the fact that Abel served the Lord and was martyred for the same. Hebrews 11.4 By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. 
Abel is an example of faith. He's an example of faith that is tested, that was tried, and was proven. Abel offered a sacrifice to the Lord with the right heart. He did so in faith. Abel offered his sacrifice, that is to say, believing in and acting on the promises and power of God, believing His Word. Notice in this example, we can remember that faith and revelation always go together. Before I told you that faith is justified by its object. True faith is faith in the true God. Well, we cannot know the true God without Him revealing Himself to us. The revelation of the true God comes to us in the knowledge of Him through His Word. The revelation of the true God came by special revelation uh, before the Word was recorded in written form through the testimony of God speaking to the patriarchs, we call them, the fathers or of the faith, all the way back to Abraham and even before him, to Adam. And so, although limited, there was a record of God's revelation. God had spoken to Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve had diligently, presumably, shared these truths with their children. One received these truths by faith, Abel. One did not, Cain. Abel offered a sacrifice to God, trusting that word, that little bit of revelation, as it were, that he received from his parents, presumably, that God would one day save him. And this sacrifice was a picture of his hope that he had in the power and promises of God. And then there was another, his brother. On the surface, they looked very similar. Sure, they brought different offerings, but even in the law, there were offerings among the produce that were acceptable under the right conditions. Cain's offering was not accepted. Why? I submit to you primarily, most directly, we can understand from the Scriptures that it was not an offering that came with faith. And whatever is not of faith is sin. Likely works. Likely trying to impress. Putting on a show. Hypocrisy. Sin of any uh, and very kind was plaguing Cain's heart. And so he was angry and evidenced this envy when God accepted Abel's sacrifice and not his own. Instead of repenting out of jealousy, he killed his brother. And so Abel testifies, even in his short life and short account of the life, to the power of faith, even in the face of death, persecution, and martyrdom, nevertheless, to trust fully and completely on God's promises and on his power. This is the message that Abel preaches to us this morning. It's coming to us through the word of God. Abel's blood cried out from the ground for judgment, and in that way it spoke to the nature of God to uh, bring justice upon the heads of all of those who are in, who are not in good standing with Him, but who have committed great acts of violence and sin against Him. This testimony of Abel's blood crying out for justice becomes a concept, becomes a way of speaking in the Bible to illustrate truths of who God is and what He requires. Even Jesus Himself used the example of Abel in Matthew 23. Jesus is speaking to the ungodly, the faithless of His day, represented by scribes and Pharisees. He says, Therefore I send you prophets and wise men, scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some of whom you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son 
of Berechiah. So the blood of Abel spoke to the justice of God and to the sin of man all through scriptures and yet speaks today. But beyond this, the blood of Abel speaks to the kindness of God to save. Abel is not dead today. Abel is alive, very much alive in the presence of God, joined with all the faithful who have died, who have gone before. No matter how their physical life was ended, their spiritual life continues. They received, because they were commended righteous by their faith, they received eternal life, the free gift of their Messiah, their eventual sacrifice to come. And so Abel is an example that helps us understand faith. Secondly, Enoch. Enoch, another interesting character. Verse 5, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. How does the life and the testimony of Enoch illuminate or illustrate faith? Well, what happened to Enoch in his physical life and actually his experience is testimony of what we have faith in. We have faith in a resurrection, a bodily resurrection from the dead. If you're a Christian in this place, part of what your faith is, is that Jesus Christ was bodily raised from the dead. He ever lives, even now, with His body in heaven, and is there, and He, as the first fruits of this act of resurrection, will lead in a victory parade, all who trust Him for eternal life, and each one of them will be bodily raised from the dead and glorified. Now, before he even died, Enoch was translated into glory. So the experience of Enoch testified to the faith of all true believers. What happened to Enoch will happen to me. I have faith and confidence and insurance. I believe in and on the promises and power of God to raise me up. This happened also to Elijah. You remember, a fiery chariot from heaven came and assumed him into glory. And he ascended and, uh, and didn't die a physical death as those of us do. And these two examples, therefore, shed light on faith. The expectation of the destiny of all who will be raised who will be resurrected, will be bodily caught up out of the grave to be reunited with our spirits one day because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Finally, our third example this morning in the text is Noah. How does Noah shed light on faith? Verse 7 in our text, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark, For the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Noah's life, listen, stood for the condemnation of the unrepentant and the salvation of those who heard the word of God. Noah's life demonstrated, it illuminated, it dramatized, if you will, the gospel. In Noah's life, he preached as a herald of righteousness, according to 2 Peter 2.5, these verses in the Bible. Presumably the entire time he was building the ark, turn from your sin 
and come through the one door of salvation and be saved from the coming deluge, the flood of judgment that will drown every rebel. Noah would preach this day in and day out to the mockery of the pagans and until his throat was hoarse as we imagine his call. To all who did not heed that word of warning and judgment, they perished. And thus uh, the ministry of Noah is testimony to the condemnation that is due the sinner. However, there was a remnant for the eight precious souls who were preserved in the ark along with the seed of all the life that would follow after the floodwaters receded. For his family, the ark was the only way of salvation. And that one door led them into the, uh, led them through the waters of judgment into new life beyond condemnation. Into the regenerated, if you will, world after the sin was washed away in the flood. This is a picture of the gospel. Condemnation and salvation are illuminated in the life, the experience, and the ministry of Noah himself. Noah confessed with his mouth, he believed in his heart the word of God, and he lived it out in his ministry, in his actions, and is in his obedience as a preacher and a herald of righteousness. And in our text today, we see that as a result, the attending evidence of his faith included an inheritance. It says, by this he, Noah, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Reminds me of our message last week, which was titled, Act Like Heirs. An heir is one who receives the testament or receives the inheritance, the estate, the estate of the one who has died. Christ is the testator. He is the one who has died. And his inheritance is received by us. Noah was a precursor to that picture and the inheritance of righteousness that came by faith. Again, believing in. And acting on the promises and power of God. Noah acted on the promises of God. That if he and what appeared to everyone else. This harebrained idea. This architectural phenomenon. Of this gigantic boat that would house enough animals to repopulate the world. This crazy notion to the world's eyes. Noah believed. He acted upon it. He invested his time, his energy, and his reputation in this dutiful obedience to the Word of God as he had received it. And as he did, he testified to his faith. Noah confessed with his mouth. He confessed with his calloused hands. He believed in his heart the gospel. And the gospel was pictured in his ministry in the boat that actually saved them. And so Christ is our ark today. He is the one door of salvation, and through Him we are preserved through the waters of judgment. And so we have faith illustrated for us today in these examples. We have the assurance, the conviction, and the commendation uh, and righteousness emphasized for us. We have laid out the complete the, the, a word and works of God and his, everything from creation to His nature. That helps us to understand the essence of what we are to believe. And we have the example so far of Abel, Enoch, and Noah to look to. Now let us, in light of this, apply this to our hearts today. Reading again, chapter 1039. 
But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. There are two kinds of people, according to Hebrews 10, 39. There are those, the faithless, who shrink back and are destroyed. Those in the days of Noah who shrunk back from the ark. No, I'm not going to associate with that crazy man, his harebrained idea. The majority has rejected him. I'll be comfortable in and around my people, my familiar surroundings, my family, and the testimony of the culture. And so they shrink back to their own destruction and are destroyed. That's one kind of person detailed here. The other kind are those who have faith. Those who believe in and act promise and power of God contained in His Word. And what is their destiny? They preserve their souls. There is a preservation of their life. That is the eventuality, the eventual testimony of their faith, even if they die as a martyr in the meantime. Nothing can touch the inheritance of eternal life. So, in this room, which are you today? Have you shrunk back from the faith? Unto destruction? Or do you relate to these even though you recognize your failures? This word resonates with you today and says, Yes, I know that is true. I testify to it. I have a desire to preserve my soul and faithfully following Christ. And you cry out with the disciples, O Lord, increase our faith. I certainly hope for everyone in this room that the second is your reality today. But I encourage you, if there is any doubt, to repent of your sin and to place faith in Christ. You have heard the word of God this morning. Let us pray that this word would equip each of us to believe and act on the promises and power of God, both of which are illustrated in communion today. And as we transition to communion this morning, let me say one word about it. Faith, as we've seen in our text today, is both a looking back to the reality that God has created and set in order all of creation and history. Faith is also a looking forward to the promises of eternal life. And in this meal today, in communion, we do both. The Scriptures say that in communion, in partaking of the Lord's table, we remember and we proclaim. In remembering, we look back to what Christ has done on Calvary and realize that His shed blood and broken body has paid for our sins. But in celebrating this meal, which is a celebration, we also proclaim what is to come. In other places in the Bible, described as the marriage supper of the Lamb, the great feast and celebration of the victory of the Lamb to defeat all His enemies and ransom Himself a people who now washed free of all vestiges of sin have perfect communion with their Savior and with the Godhead in glory. Remember and proclaim. And so in taking communion, it is an act of faith today. As you partake in these elements as a believer and only if you are a believer, I would encourage you, to believe in and act on the promises and power of God, even as we receive the elements today. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts to the message of the gospel and that you would equip us through the preaching of your word today, that you would encourage us through the fellowship of each other and especially you at your table this morning, that we may dutifully remember and proclaim 
joyfully remember and proclaim the great work on Calvary. Looking forward to the day of celebrating this meal with you and all who are listed in Hebrews 11 and all who have true faith in the true God. We thank you, God, for our inheritance. We celebrate it and give you all the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.